For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Women to Watch is an intimate look into the lives of prominent and influential women leaders from around the world and the challenges they faced on their journey. It's the real story behind her title. Join us every week to hear more stories about women from around the world and in your own communities at womentowatch.net. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch. I'm Sue Rocco. It's so great to be here, um, and Happy New Year. Joining me in just a moment will be Jamie Middleman. And Jamie is the founder of Flame Bears, which is an incredible storytelling platform for female uh, Olympians and para-Olympians. Um, as always, stay with us during the breaks where you'll hear from our watch team of corporate partners. And we invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you'll uh, find us at Women to Watch Media. So it's W, the number two, W Media. Thrilled to have you. It's been a while since we've spoken and a lot has happened. Um, and I'm excited to see, you know, all the progress you've made with your own podcast and, you know, too, too many stories, too little time. So, you know, I love that. You, and I love that you're focusing on sports. Um, there's, there's so much that's needed to be done. And we'll be talking a little bit that, about that later in the interview. Um, but I want to start with your upbringing in Boston sure, and, you know, kind of show our viewers a little sense of where this um, gutsy demeanor of yours came from. <laughs> so just talk a little bit about your upbringing, the, the community you grew up in, and a little bit about your family. Sure. Um, so I'm born and raised in, in rural Boston, um, so right outside of the city, Dover. More cows than people in the town that I grew up in, to be honest. And sport was a big part of my childhood. So growing up, it's where I had many of my highest highs, also some of my lowest lows. Sport was what brought my family together. On weekends, my friends called it boot camp middlemen. My last name is Middleman because my family would be out going for hikes or snowshoeing or skiing or wow. uh, cycling. Um, so I think at a very early age, I was introduced to sport and um, it's played a large role in my life, not only personally, but also professionally more recently. And remind me, you have siblings. Don't, do you have brothers? I have an older brother and a younger sister. So that's a very good call out because I was always trying to catch up to my older brother um, on the sports fields. Yeah. So I really want to kind of dig in and figure out you, um, you know, from what I've learned of your journey so far, and you're young, you have a long way to go, um, but you seem to continually have this desire to challenge yourself. And um, sometimes that's innate, sometimes it's genetics, you know, and sometimes there's a reason behind it. What, what do you think it is? Where does that come from? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think I've always been an incredibly competitive person. So growing up, it didn't matter if we were playing checkers or if we pl were playing soccer. I would, I always wanted to win. 
Um, that said, I think professionally, what encouraged me to be more gutsy or to start my own company actually came out of loss. Um, so I think it was a combination of, of my kind of innate characteristics combined with uh, going through a time in my life that was really, really trying. I think I've mentioned this to you before, Sue, but I had lost my dad to incurable brain cancer and then almost lost my mom tragically within the same year. She, she's okay now, um, but has had many health issues. And what I took out of that time, it was a wake up call for me. It was one of those moments where I said, you know what? Life is precious. It is short. There is no dress rehearsal here. And I'm going to go towards whatever I want, and especially the things that terrify me. Mm -hmm. um, I know you mentioned that I have you know, applied to be on Survivor three times. That's, I think, another example of me kind of running towards things that I want to do, even if they terrify me. Yeah, but it takes, I mean, those things take a physical strength as, as well as <laughs> mental strength. And sure. I think I said in my, my post, it would really be my worst nightmare to be <laughs> out in the middle of an island with no resources, cold, wet, all of that. Um, so, you know, I admire that about you. And do you, would you say when you, those are, you know, two tragedies that happen back to back, do you find that um, the way you're living your life and having started Flame Bears is helping you cope with kind of those old emotional feelings? That's exactly right. And it's so interesting because that was never my goal when I started Flame Bears. The, the mission was, it was actually not about me at all. It was all about elevating the voices of diverse women Olympians and Paralympians because there was a serious market need. And I'm happy to talk about that later. But for me, what I've found is it's actually a benefit, a side benefit that I didn't expect is this has very much helped me um, from a therapeutic perspective, from, from a healing perspective, being able to uplift voices of resiliency has helped me find my own inner resilience. That's awesome. Um, something else that you did that I think is really gutsy is your first job out of college was in Bangladesh. <laughs> True. Yes. Far cry from Boston. Um, tell our viewers what that job was and how did that come about, that opportunity? What made you decide to take that? Sure. So um, undergrad, I went to Middlebury College. I was an international affairs major, a gender studies minor. I thought I wanted to be a teacher. And I knew that I wanted to live abroad and work with women and girls. Um, given that I had gone to a liberal arts school, I was really fond of that, that model. And I was looking up um, new universities around the world that specifically worked with women and girls. And this university came up. It was based off of the Harvard and model, Harvard and Oxford models, and it worked with women from all over Asia. And this was the first time that a liberal arts education model had um, had been implemented in Asia. So I said, you know what? This sounds really cool. I know nothing <laughs> about Bangladesh. I do not speak the language, but. Um, I would love to give it a shot. So I wow. threw myself into that environment. Um, I was an English grammar teacher. So I had students who spoke 27 different languages. Um, they were from all parts. They were from Afghanistan, from India, from Bangladesh, wow. Sri Lanka. Um, and it was it was an incredible experience. Here yeah. I am, you know, this girl from Cowtown, USA, um, immersing myself in a culture that is very different. I'm hearing the call to prayer go off five times a day. 
And I think that um, that was another experience that kind of jolted me into realizing that I like to work with people who are A, different than myself, mm -hmm. and B, securing my interest in working with women and girls. Yeah. You know, as you're describing in that, these young women from all these different countries, I'm curious because I think ultimately as human beings, we all yearn for the very same thing. There's differences culturally, but what would you say you learned from that experience um, that speaks to the fact that no matter where we're from as young women or girls, we are very much the same, yearning for the same thing? It's interesting. Um, one of the projects that I did for this university, um, and this was kind of what led me to go in my future direction with the career, was a cookbook that used food as a conduit for identity. So in the beginning, many of these students did not see the similarities between themselves. You have Sri Lankans who are Sinhalese and Tamil in class together um, after a horrible, horrible war in their country. And their parents, brought them up thinking, telling them certain things about the other group. Now they're in a classroom sitting next to each other, having to, to do paired exercises together. Mm -hmm. So what I realized is that if you can find ways to share commonalities or share experiences that people have in common, that that's a fantastic bridge. So this cookbook that I produced for the university showed that a lot of the students who thought they were very different actually shared a love for food. Their moms or their grandmothers um, had been making the same foods for generations. And that, hey, actually, I'm more similar to that girl on the opposite side of the classroom than I really thought. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a lesson that, you know, we continually try to um, just have people remember, right? Exactly. I, th I think seeing the humanity in everyone is um, can be trying at times, but I think it's also one of the greatest sources of unification. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so your background is in media, and you spent some time at the, some of the major networks, Yahoo, Huffington Post, Verizon, AOL. Um, what do you miss from those years, and what do you not miss now that you're an entrepreneur? Sure. Um, a couple of different things. So when I was um, in that space, I was on our corporate social responsibility team. So I was working at the intersection of for-profit business, nonprofit causes, and governmental agencies. And what I loved about that was the ability to bring stakeholders together um, within the umbrella of a corporation where you have that support. So I miss that. I miss being within a corporation where you can walk in the door, people know those companies' names, mm -hmm. and they're going to say, welcome. Um, yeah. I miss that. I also miss, you know, the teamwork element. I'm very much a team player. I miss the water cooler talk. I miss being able to go grab a drink or a coffee with my colleagues after work because my coworkers are based all around the world. So it's a little yeah. different. It's a little harder for me to do that. Um, that said, there's a ton of things that make up for it on the other end. Um, the ability to kind of craft my own narrative that I don't have to get the, the buy-in of senior executives if I want to take the company in a different direction. Guess what? I get to steer the ship. So that's pretty lucky. Um, yeah. On kind of more of a daily basis, the ability to make your own hours and set your own schedule. These are freedoms that I definitely do not take for granted. Yeah. Sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad. Then it's all on us. 100%. Definitely a double-edged sword. Yeah. Um, so you you were getting your master's at Harvard when you decided to launch Flame Bears. 
So what was the catalyst? Because that's a heavy thing you were doing and you know, you decided to add one more thing to your plate. <laughs> start a company and go get my master's at the same time. Right, right. Um, so it was a couple of different things. Um, what's kind of funny is this, my work actually started off as a COVID iteration, um, kind of by accident, if I'm gonna be honest. Um, you mentioned I was getting my master's. I was getting a master's in policy at the Harvard Kennedy School after I had finished my MBA at Dartmouth. And I had been pitching a role to the International Olympic Committee. I said, hey, you do a lot of really amazing work around gender, around diversity, equity, inclusion. Let me help tell the world all the awesome stuff you've already done. Um, because you wouldn't know about it unless you read a, you know, the very ugly report. Sorry, if anyone is listening, works for the IOC that's buried in their website. I was trying to figure out a way to make the work that they'd already invested in more accessible to people who are not going to go read a 50 page copy only report. Um, and there was some excitement and interest in that, but then COVID happened and the Olympics and the Paralympics were postponed. No one knew what was going to happen. So Instead of kind of just twiddling my thumbs and waiting because we didn't know what was going to happen, I applied for funding within the Harvard ecosystem. I built a team of advisors and students who believed in the work, and the rest is history. Yeah. And so how many years has it been that you've been doing this? This is my third year. Your third year. Okay. So when you, you know, you start your really, it's, it's a media platform. Um, and we both know what it takes to sustain it, right? But what was the first thing you did to, um, you know, attempt to find partners? A couple different things. So the first step I had to do was identify our value proposition. Who are we? What do we bring to the table? Why are we different than what's out there already? AKA, so why should people talk to me? Why are athletes who are the best in the world going to hop on a a phone call or a Zoom with me to tell me about their story. So it was a lot of, of writing and listening and coming up with really clear definitions around what we do and what we don't do. Um, that was step one. Step two was then building a team of people who have expertise in this area who could either help me um, get introduced to the right athletes, have better connections, um, or think strategically about partnerships in areas where I may not necessarily have all those skill sets. Um, your your content's being listened to in 49 countries. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping and sure you're getting feedback from the people that are listening and tuning in. And, you know, talk a little bit about what you're hearing um, from listeners that are perhaps in the United States versus outside of the U.S. Sure. Um, every time I hear that stat about 49 countries, it, it gives me goosebumps, if I'm yeah. going to be honest. Um, the U.S. is our largest market for sure, um, probably have heavily influenced by the fact that um, we are based in English and that my network is U.S.-centric. So that's probably a caveat to call out. Um, we've received outstanding feedback across the board. Um, mothers writing in saying, this is so important. I want my sons to hear these conversations so they know um, what strong female role models look like. Other athletes writing in saying, I didn't realize that uh, people in other sport on the other side of the world had these struggles too. Thank you for telling their stories because I see, I see myself in them. 
um, aspiring middle and high school girls writing and saying, hey, I am from Southeast Asia or I'm from rural Africa. I did not have a role model in sport who looked and sounded like me. Thank you for telling their story because now I know I can make it too. Yeah. Have, are you spending time um, out outside of the studio speaking to women and, and young girls? Not as much as I'd like to. That's definitely a direction that we, that we want to go in. Um, so since graduating from Harvard, we've expanded beyond podcasting into events, so virtual and in-person and video work. And I think the events area is where we're really hoping to get kind of some more of that hands-on um, opportunity to engage with different women and girls in the community. Tell me what you've you learned about... Um... And I only can think of myself growing up as a little girl and I was not, you know, I played sports. <laughs> I would never describe myself as an athlete. I do see today, I think, and I have a daughter that girls are more apt today to want to try out and be involved in sports. And it's so good for them. It's so good for them mentally, emotionally, um, obviously physically it teaches them so much. Are, are you seeing the same? Would you say that it's a different um, environment today than it was even 10 years ago? Very much so. Um, and I have kind of the documentation uh, to prove it recently this past summer in honor of the Women's World Cup. Um, I had the opportunity to document the stories of the first women's national soccer team in the United States. So this is the 1985 U.S. women's national soccer team. And I co-hosted this series with Michelle Akers, who's FIFA player of the century, commonly referred to as the GOAT in women's soccer, greatest of all time. And to your point, it was interesting hearing the disparity uh, between the experiences on this first team to where the players are today. So for example, on this first national soccer team of the United States of America, they had to wear the men's hand-me-down jerseys. So they did not have their wow. own jerseys. They, they took the, the ones from the men's team that, and then they were passed down to them. Wow. Um, they were paid $10 a day. That is laughable. Um, so there's mm -hmm. just the disparity, the changes, um, you know, hearing it from word of mouth from those players um, from 38 years ago to today, it's very different. That said, what's interesting is at the time, Michelle and her teammates were just excited to play. At that time, they weren't frustrated by that. They were like, you know what? This is a great opportunity. So I think I've also had to kind of check myself every now and then to be like, Jamie, you're putting your lens on this. Um, just because they were paid that amount at the time, many of them were excited because before them, there hadn't even been a national team. Mm, yeah, it's kind of accepting the little things as they come, um, no matter how unfair. Exactly. Uh, listen, we're gonna go into our first break. And when we come back, I wanna talk a little bit more about that, what you're optimistic about in women's sports and what is still a frustration, a still a little bit of a bat battle. Stay with us for our watch team and we'll be back with Jamie Middleman. People are super nice and well, it's like very walkable. I already have like 15,000 steps today. I think the Schuylkill is pretty nice. Like obviously Greenhouse Park yeah. is really nice.
Philly has some of the best food ever. Definitely Badia. How could you not? I went to a lot of recently. Fantastic. Philadelphia has always been a great scene for food. We've always had great Italian food. There's great Mexican food. If you go to West Philly, there's a ton of like Indian and Ethiopian. There's all kinds. Just skate around Philly, just cruising, listening to music, come across the mural. It's just amazing. They're big, colorful. I love it. We chose Philly because it's on one of our team buildings. Go check out the art. I think one of the coolest parts of Philly is the murals and the street art. And I don't think it's something you should necessarily like go out and look for, but something that you should find on your own. You're getting on the damn train. Everybody's got their jersey on on Sundays and whatnot. Like, I love it. The Phillies were in the World Series. The soccer team was in their championship. And the Eagles, you know what I'm saying, could have won a Super Bowl. So if New York and Philly were at a party, New York would be the one that would need to be the center of tension. And they're going to make sure that everybody's taking shots with them. Philly's going to go with it, and they're going to have a great time, and they're going to be like the hype man, but they're actually going to last a little bit longer because they're going to go like harder, nitty-grittier. We are CHOP, and we can't wait to show you around. We are the nation's first children's hospital. Now, a care network with more than 50 locations that continues to expand. Three state-of-the-art research buildings with 1.5 million square feet of space. We have grown from 12 beds 165 years ago to nearly 600 beds and one of the best children's hospitals in the world. We have a level one trauma center 11 floors of patient units, more than 20 operating rooms, first-of-its-kind delivery unit for babies with birth defects, a separate cardiac operative and catheterization suite, and places to learn. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Like our internationally recognized simulation center, we have trained generations of leaders in the field of pediatrics. We are world leaders in medicine, surgery, and science. One of the top recipients in NIH funding for pediatric research. In this building, pioneers in CAR-T therapy, mitochondrial disease, brain tumors, 
hyperinsulinism, and other rare diseases. Here, groundbreaking work in fetal surgery, genetics and genomics, and neurology. In our newest building, leaders in social determinants of health, clinical informatics and epidemiology, autism, trauma and injury prevention. Our patients come from every state and 115 countries. challenges requires the best and the brightest. We are passionate about pediatrics. We are motivated to make a difference in the world and in our community. We are a team. We are CHOP. Welcome back to the show. I'm joined this week by Jamie Middleman. And Jamie started her own storytelling platform called Flame Bearers. It's a great name. And she's devoting her work to telling the stories of women Olympians and Paralympians um, whose stories often are not told. And um, I wanted to share a quote, Jamie, that I found. You said, I created this podcast to be a microphone for women who are true masters of resiliency that we can all learn from. Um, tell me what you've learned from them. Where, where, you know, as far as resilience, that's a word we, we use a lot, I would say, in media, in culture today. Um, mm -hmm. So I think I want to ask you, what, what is resilience? What do you think that is? That's the million dollar question. It's something I like to ask every athlete I work with and every athlete has a different answer. Um, so to start, I would say that it means something different to every single person. Um, in my context, I'd say it's the ability to uh, fill my cup up enough where I have the ability to keep going when things get ch tough and when things get challenging and the ability to call on my peers and my tribe and my network to surround me and uplift me when I'm really struggling. Um, so I mentioned it's the fact when, you know, losing my dad and then almost losing my mom and, you know, continuing forward with my, my graduate studies at Harvard, starting this platform and actually not turning inwards when that's really kind of what I wanted to do. Do you think one of the things I think it is important when it comes to resilience is the ability to not react to the world around everything's going on around us, lots of noise, lots of opinions, um, and to be able to stay centered and not react emotionally, I think, be, be affected emotionally. Um, what do you think about that concept? I I love that. Um, I, I'm a certified yoga instructor. So the idea of personal grounding, of holding your own personal space um, is very much aligned with my personal ethos of, of how I aspire to live every day. I think um, in general, I try to check myself whenever I've noticed that I'm becoming a reactive person. I aspire mm -hmm. to be more of the, the person who charts my own course um, and thinks 
thinks thoughtfully and then acts accordingly. Yeah. But, you know, easier said than done. Well, I'll tell you, the good news is you get better at it, better at it as you get older. <laughs> less and less matters. I'm, I mean, that's what's happening. Um, so I do want to talk, you know, you're right in the thick of women and sports and what's happening and so many good things are happening, but there's still a lot that needs to be done. So yeah. tell me what you're optimistic about and then what is still a frustration? Great. Uh, let me start with the frustrations and then I'll, okay. I'll, end, on a, I'll end on a positive note. Um, so when I started this, less than 5% of sports media was going to women athletes. So that means that 95% of sports media coverage historically has gone to male athletes. So the idea of sports coverage being uh, sports coverage is kind of a misnomer. It's more historically been male sports coverage if 95% of it has gone to men. Uh, we are now up to 15% of sports media coverage going to women athletes. So we're making progress. Wow, 15? I thought it was... I thought it was more, but okay. Yes, this is a brand new study by Wasserman out a couple couple months ago. Um, we're up to 15%. So that is both a, a sign that we are trending in the right direction. And I think it shows that we are um, desperately still needing help. Um, another thing that I would like to put on the table as significantly um, needing opportunity is equal pay. Um, men's playing salaries in general, this is from the same Wasserman study, are 21 times that of female athletes. And 90% of sports partnership dollars go to male athletes. Um, so there's incredible opportunity. What I am hopeful for is this past year has been a breakthrough year for women in sports. We are seeing um, world record numbers of attendance, of people tuning in for events like the World Cup, of, of the Olympics. Um, last time on uh, primetime television was the first time that the Paralympics were ever shown. So that is, that is a plus in the category of ability and disability, uh, not necessarily just women's sports. And I think we're seeing companies like Ally, like Gatorade, like Nike, step up to bat and put sponsorship dollars behind this. So actually um, leading with their actions as opposed to just their words. Yeah. What do you think it is about soccer? Soccer does seem to be the one that has, you know, has the biggest draw, you know, as far as uh, people being interested in watching um, versus uh, a male sport. Um, well, it's interesting. So uh, I'm happy you said that I was a soccer player in college for a little bit. So I'm personally connected to it. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that the U.S. women's national team has done so well. Mm. They have historically kind of been the international uh, superstar team to beat. Um, I think that that is probably why within the country they're heralded um, as kind of the best because of their international record. At the same time, we are seeing numbers of girls participating in soccer increase um, within the U.S. and throughout the world. So popularity of soccer is also rising, which, you know, if you're playing it, you're going to want to probably tune in for it as well. Do you see another sport coming in at number two? Um, I'd have to go back and check those stats. Soccer is by far and away leading the charge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me what, when I think of, you know, there's, you play sports, you're, um, an athlete and then there's Olympians and I think <laughs> Olympians have a whole different mindset. Um, what do you think it is among female Olympians that what, what, 
I guess I would say, what's a commonality? You've met now so many. What do they share? There's a lot of things that they share. One of which um, is the fact that they they are very real. So you, you mentioned that they are very separate from us. And I thought the same thing. I always grew up putting them on pedestals, thinking that they are superhuman. But when you speak with hundreds of them, you realize that they are human. They have their flaws. They have their struggles. They have their ups and their down days. So that's that's one thing I like to call out that a lot of athletes are really um, attentive to because they feel like they have to almost be robotic and on at all times. Mm. I think one thing that I would say is... Um, For many of them, they view failure or loss as a learning opportunity. So all of these athletes, they haven't always been great. Many of them were actually really bad to begin with, or they were in another sport and they found their calling later in life. But all of them viewed all of their losses um, as opportunities to become better. And I think that that's a learning that applies outside of sport too. For anyone, um, when you get you know, when something doesn't go your way, but viewing it as a learning opportunity instead of a personal failure. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I remember one of my fondest memories in in an interview was when my guest said, um, it's not failure, you're eliminating what's not working. Exactly. Right. Exactly. I, we all say it's not failure. You learn, but it's also if you, so if you've tried a hundred times, that's not a bad thing. You're eliminating all the things that aren't working. I love that. I right? absolutely love that. I do too. I just think it's a, such an optimistic way to look at things that don't work. Yeah. Something yeah. else that I've, that I've continuously heard is the idea of them being built upon the shoulders of their community, of their family. Katerina Roxon of Canada told me when she was on the podium at the Paralympics, she's a swimmer. She was envisioning her whole family behind her because her dad is her coach. Her, her mom always drove her to practice. Her sister yeah. swam with her. And what you found is, you know, yes, we tune in for the, the Olympics and the Paralympics and we see their five minutes of fame. But behind those five minutes, there's families and communities mm-hmm. and hundreds of people who have supported each and every one of those athletes. Um, and they are the first to give credit to them. Um, so I think that that's number two. And, and number three, what they have in common, um, they're all, I'd say resilience. I kind of mentioned that before, but the fact that um, no does not mean no forever. It means no today. And and I would say pushing through pain. My guess is yeah. <laughs> physical pain and keep going, you know, um, yeah, I kind of stop when things hurt physically. <laughs> right. So I love, I again, impressed by um, people that, you know, can push through the pain. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about you and, you know, starting anything. Yeah. Foundation, a company, a business, a media platform is, is, is a risk and it does take some courage. And so... Um, is there someone that believed in you that helped you to to actually launch Flame Bears? Because I think often it's a person that we can sense really believes in us when we're not believing in ourselves. Yeah. Um, I'll give you the personal answer and the professional answer. So the personal answer is my parents. 
my dad was my soccer coach growing up. My mom had me on skis when I was very early and they always deeply believed in me. Um, even when my mom was sick and has, you know, has been recovering, she has been my number one fan throughout this entire process. Um, sitting down for brainstorms with me, asking me for, um, you know, bouncing ideas around. So, from a personal perspective, my mom and my dad 100% have been the voices inside of my head and the ones who are kind of um, cheering me from the rooftops. Uh, professionally, I would say it was, her name is Dr. Kesley Hong. She was one of my advisors for this project when I was at Harvard. And she was instrumental in this work because she challenged me to include Paralympians in this work. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish that I could say that before Dr. Kesley Hong, I was going to include Paralympians, but that's not the case. Um, when I started Flame Bears, it was right at the beginning of Black Lives Matter and right after the murder of George Floyd. And I was having many conversations with my white friends, my white colleagues about the responsibility and roles uh, that I and that we as white individuals have to have conversations around race. And that historically, the burden of those conversations has fallen on the shoulders of people of color. And Dr. Kesley Hong challenged me. She said, Jamie, how can that learning apply to what you're doing? And I said, you know what? That's a really valid point. I am a person without a physical disability. And yet the conversations around ability and disability frequently fall on the shoulders of people with physical disabilities. Mm. And that in the same way that I can be an advocate and an ally as a white woman for black and brown people, I have a responsibility and an opportunity to be an advocate and an ally for people with physical disabilities too. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, My last question, because, and sometimes this is hard. People ask me all the time, you know, who's your favorite interview? Um, Oh, and actually I have two more questions for you. Because I always want to know, I'm always looking for good questions. What What is one of your favorite questions to ask of your guests? And then my guess is there's a power Olympian that has probably incredibly inspired you. And and who would that be? Okay. So the first one, um, questions I like to ask them. The first, I'll give you two. The first is advice to their younger selves. So when I interviewed Sue Bird, I'd say, Sue, little Sue is listening. What do you want to tell her? And I like asking that question because it brings out a lot of the insecurities and the, the elements that every person struggles with. Um, I close every interview asking the athlete with an ask of our community. So what is the one action you want our community members to take? And I like to do that because then it feels like there is almost more of a reciprocal nature in the conversation. Um, That if someone wants people to take a certain action, that hopefully they'll take it. Yeah. Um, in terms of a Paralympian who I would give a shout out to, uh, this is always so challenging because I feel like I'm being asked to choose between my unborn I children, know. but, I know. um, <laughs> which kids do you like better? <laughs> yeah. Right. One athlete who, I'll, who I think is, um, absolutely incredible is Rita Asimwe. Rita is from Uganda. She is the number one para badminton player in all of Africa. And Rita is uh, very outspoken about her journey. Uh, She was born right-handed and was protecting her grandmother when thieves broke into her house. 
and she distracted the thieves and they ended up chasing her out and cutting off her right hand with oh a machete. My gosh. Oh my and Rita had to relearn how to do everything, how to write, how to wash clothes, how to cook. How to get over the trauma. That exactly. Like first, right? My God. With her left hand. And yeah. flash forward to today, she's the number one para Batman player in all of Africa. Oh, wow. Um, and I think what's so interesting about, about Rita, and she challenges many, many of the tropes that kind of come into play when you talk to Paralympians is she's the first person to say, I don't want anyone feeling bad for me. This is not, don't pity me. Mm. I'm the same old Rita. Um, I can yeah. do everything just as well. Um, but I think what's also equally tough is she's responsible for funding 100% of her journey to this summer's Paralympics. So there's not support for her. Uh -huh. So she is um, working multiple jobs, trying to find sponsors, also, so she can just go to compete at the world stage. Wow. I can't wait to look her up. <laughs> Read about her. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. That's incredible. Well, listen, um, I'm so grateful that you took time to be on my show. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of what you're doing. Um, we'll probably, probably in the future, we'll have crossovers. If I happen to have an Olympian, I'm going to send them your way. Um, and again, so many stories too little time um, and uh, we'll keep banging them out. That's great. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. Thanks, Jamie. Uh, we're gonna go into our next break and you'll hear from another member of our watch team and I'll be back to close out the show. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jamie. From Philadelphia to the Lehigh Valley and everywhere in between, for 150 years, Penn Community Bank has been a part of your neighborhood. Helping businesses start, supporting families as they grow, and staying connected to the people and places that make this region special. It's who we are and where we're from. Penn Community Bank. Here we are, and here we grow. We are CHOP and we can't wait to show you around. We're the nation's first children's hospital. Now, a care network with more than 50 locations that continues to expand. Three state-of-the-art research buildings with 1.5 million square feet of space. We have grown from 12 beds 165 years ago to nearly 600 beds and one of the best children's hospitals in the world. We have a level one trauma center, 11 floors of patient units, more than 20 operating rooms, first of its kind delivery unit for babies with birth defects, a separate cardiac operative and catheterization suite, and places to learn, like our internationally recognized simulation center, we have trained generations of leaders in the field of pediatrics. We are world leaders in medicine, surgery, and science. One of the top recipients in NIH funding for pediatric research. In this building, pioneers in CAR-T therapy, mitochondrial disease, brain tumors, hyperinsulinism, and other rare diseases. Here, groundbreaking work in fetal surgery, genetics and genomics, and neurology. 
In our newest building, leaders in social determinants of health, clinical informatics and epidemiology, autism, trauma and injury prevention. Our patients come from every state and 115 countries. challenges requires the best and the brightest. We are passionate about pediatrics. We are motivated to make a difference in the world and in our community. We are a team. We are CHOP. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Thanks so much for tuning in. Next week, I'll be speaking with Julia Stewart. And Julia is the CEO and founder of Alarex. Thank you so much to our sponsors and have a great week. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise, and with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.